Hello, everyone. Today's message is not a normal message. This is not one of our Sunday messages or a sermon that is part of a message series. This is one of those supplemental podcasts that we do every now and then. And the title of today's podcast is A Primer on Revelation. In other words, I want to give you an introduction to the book of Revelation. Now, I want to do this for a few important reasons. Uh, The first is some of you who are a part of our community here at New Denver Church are reading through the entire Bible this year, and we are coming to the very end of the project. It is uh, The end is in sight, and the last book we are going to read is the book of Revelation. And so I want to give you a few tips uh, before you read that or as you read that book so that you can understand it a little bit better. Um, But this isn't just for those who are part of that project. This is really for anyone who's ever tried to read the book of Revelation. You know it is one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Um, It's it's one of the most interesting. I I remember as a kid uh, or as a teenager, I, I read this. It was like the only book in the Bible that I actually read multiple times because I just thought it was so interesting and fascinating and I was intrigued by it. But it is certainly one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. And so I want to clear up some confusion and maybe give you a few suggestions for how to approach it um, better as we try to figure out what it means and, and what it's all about. So uh, let me begin by offering just a few suggestions in terms of resources if you want to go deeper. Um, I'm just going to skim the surface today, uh, talk about some basics, but if you did want to go deeper, um, here's a few books that I have leaned on and that I'll lean on um, going forward that I would recommend for you. The first is a uh, short little book. It's great. It's called A Companion to the Book of Revelation by David Mathewson. Uh, Dave Mathewson is a professor at Denver Seminary here in Denver, and um, he has written probably the most accessible and easy and kind of get-you-started book on Revelation. So, A Companion to the Book of Revelation. Uh, The second book came um, came out by Scott McKnight, Uh, in the last year, Scott McKnight's a New Testament scholar, and it's called Revelation for the Rest of Us. Uh, Scott goes into a little bit more depth and really walks through uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all of the symbols, all of the images, and tries to help um, us understand those a little bit better. And uh, uh, his book is a great introduction. And then last is um, a book that's been out for quite a long time from one of my favorite authors, uh, Eugene Peterson. And the name of the book is Reversed Thunder, uh, The Revelation of John and the Praying Imagination. Uh, Peterson's book is less of a uh, Bible study kind of book or exegetical resource. Um, If you've ever read Peterson, you know he, he approaches things a little differently. It's more of a contemplative Uh, meditative, uh, spiritual, uh, theological assessment of what this book of Revelation is all about. So those are three great 
None of those are very long uh, books to get you started. There's obviously other much longer commentaries. If you have a study Bible, there's probably some great resources in there. Um, But those are some ways uh, to go deeper if you want to in learning about the book of Revelation. So let me begin with some basics and then I'm going to ask to ask and answer two really important questions. So the basics are uh, this book is one of the last books, probably the last book written that is included in the Bible. It is likely written by the Apostle John. Uh, so remember, Jesus had 12 disciples. John was one of them. He was one of the most uh, well-known and closest disciples to Jesus. Um, After the Christian movement began in the 30s, 40s, 50s AD, John became a pastor uh, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, back then Asia Minor, um, and John was a pastor there for many years. And then uh, late, late in his life, he was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know the exact circumstances surrounding it, but um, in some form or fashion, he was seen as a threat to the Roman authorities. Uh, And so he was sent there to live. He wasn't necessarily in prison or anything like that, but he was sent there to live uh, so that he would no longer um, raise any kind of ruckus Uh, in Roman culture or Roman society. And so he's living on this island and he receives this vision or has this vision and he writes um, it all down and that's what becomes known as the book of Revelation. It's probably written at the very end of the first century, maybe 90, 95 AD. We have some uh, scholars have some clues that sort of helps us zero in on those rough dates Um, and it was one of the last books included uh, in what we now call the New Testament. Um, Revelation, and it's important to call it uh, Revelation singular. Um, Every now and then I hear people say the book of Revelations, uh, plural, with an S on the end, but it's not uh, plural. Um, The very first line of the book is that this is a revelation, uh, a singular revelation. Uh, revelation that is being shared. And so um, going forward, just keep in mind, uh, it's singular revelation. There's 22 chapters in the book. Um, Originally, there were not chapters or verses, and that's true of all books, books in the Bible. Those were added later just to help us get around and be able to refer to different parts of a book easily. But we have 22 chapters now. The first three chapters are a bit different than the rest of the book. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the book, and then chapters 2 and 3 contain seven messages to seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. So John is writing, and he includes these seven messages so that this book is supposed to be read in these seven different churches Uh, They're described according to each city. You can read uh, the city of Ephesus, Laodicea, Sardis, uh, these seven different churches, and there's a different message for each of the churches. By the way, the seven churches sort of make up a circular route, so it seems clear that they're even given an order that a messenger might take this book 
uh, to each of the churches and read it out loud to each of these seven churches. So that's the first three chapters. By the way, um, we did a whole series, uh, a message series at New Denver many years ago on these seven letters. So you can dig into our website and find those if you would like. But then chapters 4 through 22, the whole rest of the book is where you get into all of the interesting and fascinating and crazy stuff of Revelation. So there is this vision for a couple of chapters of God being worshipped. And then there are these seven scrolls that, uh, or a scroll that has, sorry, seven seals on it. A seal would be to close up or to kind of keep the scroll unread. And so each of these seven seals are broken. And, it, and these are not literal seals. This is a vision of, of these seals represent something else. So there's these seven seals, and then there's these seven trumpets, and then there's these seven bowls. And again, all of these represent other things. There's images and visions of dragons and beasts, and there's a war, and there's something called Babylon. We'll talk about that. And then at the end, there is a vision of Jesus defeating all of these evil forces of Babylon. And then at the very end, there's a description of the new heavens and the new earth. So that is the book of Revelation. Now, the most important question that we could ask before we read this book and as we are reading this book is this. What kind of book is this? What type of literature are we reading? And this gets to the issue of what we call genre. Genre is something we're all familiar with, um, particularly when it comes to movies, right? You can watch a horror movie, a thriller movie, sci-fi, a romantic comedy, historical drama, a documentary, right? There's all different types of genres. And if you know it's a documentary, you're going to sit and watch it and interpret it and understand it differently than you would a science fiction fantasy movie. So different genres are watched and understood in different ways. They have different purposes. And literature is the same way. We have memoirs and biographies and poetry and uh, lyrics to songs and uh, fiction and fantasy fiction and young adult fiction. I mean, there's all kinds of different fiction. So There's all kinds of different genres. And so essentially what we need to ask is, what genre is Revelation? What kind of book, what kind of writing or literature are we reading? And Revelation is unique because it is a blend of three different genres. So it would be a bit like saying we're going to watch a movie tonight and it's part sci-fi, part romantic comedy, part thriller. And you would say, wow, very interesting. And then you would understand there's going to be aspects of this that have like a thriller, aspects that are science fiction, aspects that are romantic comedy. And Revelation is the same way. It is three different types of genres sort of all blended together. And there are important pieces of each genre that we need to understand. And so let me walk through all three things. And these are really, really important because all of this gives us an understanding of how we are to read and understand this book. So the very first 
genre or kind of literature the book of Revelation is, and this is foundational, it is a letter. It is simply a letter from John to a group of people. So he is writing to his friends in Ephesus. So that's one of the churches he's writing to, the people living in Ephesus. And he would have known many of these people probably. So these are friends. He's also writing to people living in the city of uh, Philadelphia at the time. Not the United States Philadelphia, different Philadelphia. And he might have known some of those people. He was also writing to the people of Laodicea, the people of Sardis. So there's seven cities that I mentioned before. He is writing a letter to these specific people. And in that sense, it is really not that different from the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus and to Philemon and to the people he knew in Corinth and the people he knew in Philippi. Uh, Paul was writing a personal letter to them, and he had some things to share with them, and he had some things he wanted to teach them or to remind them, and that is exactly what John is doing here. This is first and foremost, John sitting down to say, I have some things I need to communicate to my friends in Ephesus and Laodicea and these seven cities in Asia Minor, and so I am writing this letter to them. That means that this is not uh, this book about the future and about these prophecies and about these crazy things that are going to happen one day. And, you know, this is first and foremost a letter written to specific people about their context and their time period and what's going on in their lives and what John wants them to understand about what's happening and how they can grow in their journey of faith. Okay? So always come back to this idea that it is a letter first and foremost. Second kind of genre or kind of literature that this is, is a prophetic message. It's a prophetic message. In fact, we're told right in the beginning that this is a prophecy. Now, I don't love the word prophecy because just that word alone brings up all kinds of things in our mind of what prophecy is. So I use the term prophetic message because, in a sense, what John is doing is he's offering a a letter first to his friends, and the letter contains a message for them, and it is a message that is prophetic in the same way that people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel had messages that they shared with the people of Israel in the ancient world. And those messages eventually were written down and they became these prophetic books that we now have in the Old Testament. But essentially these books are just messages shared from prophets to a group of people. And so that's what John is doing. He has an important message he wants to share with his friends in Asia Minor, and this message will have prophetic undertones to it. Now, again, when we think of prophecy, we almost always think about prediction, (laughs) that a prophecy is a prediction about the future. And while, uh, let's go back to the Old Testament prophets, while the Old Testament prophets from time to time had these prophecies or these predictions about the future, 90 
you know, 8% of what they shared and wrote was not about something that's some event that's going to happen in the future. Almost all of it was commentary or critique on what was going on in their culture and in their lives and in their cities and in their nation at that time. And so, for those of you who have recently read Isaiah, you know that there are big sections of Isaiah where Isaiah is critiquing and pronouncing judgment upon all of these different nations, and the one that he pronounces the most judgment upon is what? Babylon. The Babylonian Empire of the 7th and 6th century BC, where Isaiah is talking about how wicked the Babylonian Empire is, how they do not worship God, how they oppress the poor, how they sacrifice their children, how they do all of these wicked things, and that God will eventually bring judgment upon them. That... Excuse me. (coughs) That, for the most part, is what prophetic messages were like. So John, skip forward to the first century AD, is writing a letter to his friends living in the Roman Empire. And much of this letter contains overt criticism and descriptions of judgment upon something called Babylon. So this word Babylon comes up in the middle of this letter that John writes, and there's all kinds of descriptions of Babylon. Babylon is pictured as a beast and as this monster and as a dragon, and it's described as murderous and militaristic and economically exploitative of of people and arrogant and proud and standing against God. And here's what you need to know. Babylon is the Roman Empire. Babylon is code language that John is using to describe the Roman Empire that his friends and readers and listeners are living in during that day. Now, this would have been obvious if you were living in that day. You would have known immediately that John is not, he's writing a letter to us and he's not talking about Babylonian Empire from 600 years ago. He's talking about Rome. In fact, at one point he talks about the seven hills of Babylon and everyone at that time knew that the city of Rome sat on seven hills. And so there's all kinds of clear indications that he's talking about Rome And he's criticizing Rome because Rome has become the new Babylon. Rome itself is murderous. They say that they're peaceful, but their armies go out and they murder people and they defeat people and they conquer people and they enslave people and they economically exploit people and they're arrogant and they think they're the center of the world and they think that Rome will stand forever and they stand against God because they make us worship their Roman gods and they uh, persecute followers of Jesus And so Babylon is Rome. So we have a letter, first and foremost, that contains a message for John's friends. And the message has a prophetic bent to it. It is a condemnation and a criticism of the empire in which they are living that is doing all it can to destroy their faith. And so part of the message that John is going to write to his friends is, hang in there, be strong, 
Stand against this empire. Um, be like a dissident. In fact, that, that's uh, one of the angles that Scott McKnight takes in his book, Revelation for the Rest of Us. The subtitle of the book is A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. That's a great summary of this letter that John is writing to his friends. He's saying, I want to offer you a prophetic call to keep following Jesus. But in order to keep following Jesus, you're going to have to be like a dissident because everything in the Roman Empire that you are living in is pushing against the way that you want to follow Jesus. So John is trying to comfort and strengthen these dissident disciples. So this book is first and foremost a letter, number one. Number two, it's a prophetic message. But here's the third, and this third genre or this third type of literature, and this is going to be the most foreign to all of us, and uh, and yet this is one we're going to have to get our minds and our heads around. Third, this is apocalyptic literature. It is a apocalyptic literature. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, you think of end of the world, right? Um, because that's the common picture we have of apocalypse or apocalyptic. Um, apocalypse is quite literally a Greek word. The English word now that we use, apocalypse or apocalyptic, comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. And it is the first word in this letter that John writes. And the Greek word apocalypsis means an unveiling an uncovering, a disclosure, or a, what? A revealing. <laughs> and so that's why the book starts with the revelation of Jesus Christ, or you could say the uncovering, the unveiling, the, the revealing of Jesus Christ. So this kind of literature, apocalyptic literature, is always unveiling or revealing something that we cannot now see. It is unveil, unveiling or revealing an alternative reality. And so that's what John is going to do. He's writing a letter to his friends. It's going to have prophetic undertones. But what he wants to do is unveil to them or reveal to them how things really are, not how they appear to be. Because how they appear to be right now is that Rome is winning, that Rome is crushing everybody in its path, that Rome is forcing us to worship idols and other gods, that Rome will force us to be what we don't want to be, and Rome will win. Because Rome says all the time, we will win. Caesar is Lord. Bow to Caesar. And what John is trying to tell his friends is that that is not how things actually are. That if I could pull away the curtain, what I'm going to do in this letter I'm writing you is pull away the curtain and show you how things really are. Now, here's what you have to understand about apocalyptic literature. It is not just the book of Revelation. That in fact, during this time period, there were many, many, 
many different apocalyptic accounts or kinds of literature that were written. That Revelation is not the only one. And so, um, this is interesting. When I was in seminary, I signed up for an entire semester-long class just on the book of Revelation. It was an elective I took. I had already learned Greek, and so we actually read through the book in Greek, in the original language, and we did everything we could to understand it. But much to my surprise, when I started that semester, the very first book that we were handed to read was called, I'm looking at it right now, Apocalyptic Literature, A Reader. And it was edited by a scholar, and it was about 350 pages of other apocalyptic writings from the first century BC and the first century AD. Uh, Apocalyptic writings called the Apocalypse of Peter, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Apocalypse of Paul, the Animal Apocalypse, the Apocalypse of Weeks, 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch, the Book of Watchers, the War Scroll from Qumran, the New Jerusalem scroll from Qumran. And I could go on and on. I'm just reading from the table of contents. And we read all of these different works and they were all apocalyptic in nature. They were all an unveiling or a disclosing or a revealing of how things really are, not how they appear to be. And every single one of these books we would read and they would typically start with This is a vision that I received. The author is saying, I received a vision or a dream. And this vision or dream that I had contained this journey that I was taken on. And usually the journey was mediated by some sort of angel or some sort of heavenly being that awakes the person and says, we're going on a journey through the heavens, through the celestial, uh, otherworldly places. And all of these different Um, symbols and images and metaphors are pointed out along the journey and they all mean something. They all refer to actual persons or actual places or actual events that are taking place in the present. And this apocalyptic writing was always meant to address some kind of crisis going on in people's lives. And so there's a crisis and the people aren't sure what to do. And this book is written that says, I've had a vision and I've seen the world as it really is. And all of the things that we're afraid of right now, we don't need to be afraid of. And all of the things that we need to stand against right now are now clear. Here's what we need to stand against. And all of the ways that we need to be strong here is how they look. And so apocalyptic literature was a very common genre at that time. It's a bit like dystopian movies right now or books. There's tons of them that are coming out about the end of the world, right? And what's going to happen when some plague, you know, wipes out most of humanity and what the world will look like after that time. It's a really popular genre right now. Well, apocalyptic literature kind of like dystopian, but it's different in key ways that I just mentioned before, was a very popular genre of literature at that time. And so this is what John uses when he writes his letter to his friends and he wants to communicate this prophetic message to them. He lets them know, 
I've had a vision too. And in my vision, here's what I saw. And what I saw is an alternative story of what you are being told by the Roman Empire every single day. You're being told that Caesar is Lord, but I saw that there was a different Lord sitting on the throne. You're being told that the Roman Empire will always win, but I saw that one day it will all come to an end. You're being told that violence and murder, and military might, and slavery, and economic exploitation are just realities of our world, and that there's nothing you can do about them. But in my vision, I saw that one day something will be done about them. They will be judged for what they are, and they will be ultimately defeated. So this apocalyptic genre that frames most of the book of Revelation, particularly after those seven letters. There's this introduction to the book, and then there's seven little messages, each to a different church. And then, as I said, you get to these huge visions of a lamb who's on a throne, and there's people worshiping, and then there's evil, and then there's horses, and then there's bulls, and there's all these things. Here's what you need to know. All of those apocalyptic events that are described and those images and those symbols and those metaphors do not refer to future events that we now have to unlock or figure out or understand the riddle so that one day we can understand when the four horsemen are showing up and what the four seven bowls are and what the seven trumpets are. and what the No, all of those Images and metaphors and symbols refer to things going on in the first century AD in the lives and culture of the people that John is writing to. This is about their lives and how they can be faithful witnesses and disciples of Jesus, even in the midst of all of the difficult things that are happening around them. Do you see how once you understand that Revelation is actually like a whole bunch of other books that came out at that same time, it fits into this genre that has all these symbols and metaphors, and they're never meant to be taken literally, so let's stop taking them literally. And they're meant to address a crisis at that time. And they always include visions and dreams and all sorts of stuff that maybe doesn't seem to fit together that's way more artistic and poetic in nature, but it does refer to realities. Once we understand that, once we understand that this is a prophetic critique primarily about the evil in the world in the Roman Empire at that time, and once we understand that first and foremost, this is a letter written to people, That changes the way we approach this book. It means that we will stop making uh, timelines and predictions and thinking, oh, I guess the seven-headed beasts or the ten-headed must be the European Union and this stands for Russia or the Soviet Union and this is about the war that's happening in Palestine right now and one day this is going to refer to that. No, 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 no. That is not what's going on in this letter that John wrote to his friends 
about how they should live their lives at the time. So, Revelation is a letter, it's a prophetic message, it is apocalyptic literature, and if you put all that together, then we have to ask, okay, if I understand this is the kind of literature it is, then how should I read it? How should I interpret it? If I want to know how this letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago is beneficial to me or applies to me or is helpful for me or what it means for me, how do I do that? Well, let me give you a few principles. And these um, mostly come, I've adapted them a little bit, out of Matthewson's book, A Companion to the Book of Revelation, which again, I think is so helpful. How do we interpret this book as we read it today? Well, number one, Revelation was meant to be understood by its original readers. (laughs) We have to start there. This is a letter that was meant to be understood by its original readers. This is not a letter written where God said, I'm going to hide a whole bunch of riddles and predictions and stuff about things that are going to happen two or 3,000 years later, and it's going to make zero sense to its original readers. But one day people will come along and they'll unlock all of the... No, 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 no. Revelation was meant, just like the letter that Paul Paul wrote to his friends, Revelation was meant to be understood by its original readers. Second key principle. That means we need to interpret it in light of its historical and original context. If we want to know what it means for us, we have to start by asking what did it mean for them, which means we have to put ourselves in their shoes. So when you read the book of Revelation, it's helpful to understand what was happening in 90 or 95 AD. What was the life of a follower of Jesus like? We actually get some pretty good clues in chapters 2 and 3 in the seven little messages that John writes to his friends because he addresses specific things going on in their lives, so that's helpful. But that's where other books and resources might be helpful to understand what was going on in their original context. Because we can't make sense of what it means for us until we first interpret it in light of its original context. So we have to put ourselves in their shoes first. Uh, Number three, third principle, Revelation communicates in metaphors and images mostly, particularly in that big section, chapters 4 through 22, not literal statements or propositions. So again, this is the way apocalyptic literature works. These are metaphors. There's not an actual horseman that's going to show up. There's not actual uh, seven-headed or ten-headed monster. There's not an actual beast coming out of the sea. There's not an actual dragon. Uh, These are all metaphors and images. They're not meant to be taken Literally. So that'll go a long ways towards helping us begin to understand what's going on. Um, Number four, a lot of this imagery comes from the Old Testament, but some of it also comes from the Greco-Roman world of John's time. So as you read the book of Revelation, this letter that was written, You'll actually see a lot of verses quoted. 
If you have a study Bible, it'll often tell you when something is quoted or referred to from the Old Testament. There's a lot from Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and other books in the letter of Revelation. And so if you want to truly understand some of that imagery, it helps to go back uh, and understand the imagery in the Old Testament. Now, that's a lot of work. And if you're really getting down and trying to study it, you'll do that. If you don't have time for that, at least know and understand that John is drawing on lots and lots of images from the Old Testament prophets. And those can help us understand what he's writing. Now, he's also going to sometimes draw on just common images that were used in the Greco-Roman world, like dragons. Um, That was a common image at that time. Um, And so... Understanding some of this imagery will require understanding the ancient historical context. Uh, Principle number five, I believe it is. Revelation can point to a future hope, but it is primarily about present events. So I don't want to suggest there is no future hope intended in Revelation. Certainly there is. It ends with God ultimately defeating evil. It ends with this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, which, by the way, Isaiah talks about that as well. So again, this is a lot like the Old Testament prophets. There is hope. One day God is doing something now, and one day God will ultimately finish the project of bringing his total restoration to the world and all things will be made new and right. And so we can hope in that. There is a a future-leaning hope that comes from this letter that John wrote, but it is primarily about the present events going on in his listeners and his readers' lives. And so we have to understand what's going on in their lives, and then that means it probably can speak specifically to our present lives. We don't read this letter to understand the future. We read this letter because perhaps there are things about our culture right now that feel oppressive. Perhaps there are a lot of idols in our culture that are begging for us to worship them instead of worshiping God. Perhaps there is economic exploitation. Perhaps there is violence. Perhaps there is pride. Perhaps there is arrogance. Perhaps there is persecution. Perhaps there are all sorts of things that are going on in our lives or in our world, in our culture, in our present. And this is what the letter that John wrote speaks to. So it can point to future hope, but it is primarily about the present And then the last principle I want to give you um, is that revelation is intended to inspire worship, obedience, and allegiance. These are three key words. It is intended, it is clear that John is doing everything he can to inspire in the people that are going to read this letter, worship, obedience, and allegiance. Uh, worship is huge. There's this one scene, Revelation uh, 4 and 5, where it describes uh, all this massive worship service. And um, there's all these people, and there's all these beasts, and there's all these living beings, and the Lamb is on the throne in the middle of it. 
And this shapes the entire book because it's not just about worshiping God with our songs or as if like it's about going to church or anything like that. It's about our entire lives. It's about everything that you have and all that you are. Is it worshiping God or is it worshiping something else? It's one or the other. There's really no neutrality for John. You're either giving in to worshiping idols and other things or you're worshiping God. It's one or the other. And he says that we have to obey the challenges that he gives. So the very beginning of the book in verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophetic message. And that's probably what would have happened in these seven churches. One person would have stood up and read it aloud to everyone. And blessed are those who hear it. So all the people listening to it. And blessed are those who take to heart what is written in it. Literally, blessed are those who keep these words, who obey these words. Which is fascinating because there are not commandments in this letter. There are not uh, specific Uh, uh, commands or instructions, it's more like as you read this letter and as you see the world for what it really is, may you be one who is truly obedient to the call to follow Jesus. And so John is inspiring worship, he's inspiring obedience, and ultimately he's trying to inspire allegiance. There is this sense That you are giving your allegiance always to something or to someone. And everything in your culture right now in the Roman Empire is calling you to give your allegiance to Rome, to the authorities, to the emperor, to the gods, to all of these things. And John is saying, no, give your allegiance to God. Because ultimately, this is where life is found. Ultimately, this is where joy is found. Ultimately, this is where redemption and restoration is. This is where history is moving. This is the true story. All of these other things will fade. All of them will be gone. One day, God will make all things new. And so give your allegiance to Him. So, As you read this book, may you remember it's a letter first and foremost. It's a prophetic message and it fits into this genre called apocalyptic literature. And so when you get to all of these crazy and vivid metaphors, it should be crazy. That's the way it was meant to be. And it was meant to offer a meaning and a purpose in our present, in their present and in our present. And may these words be a blessing to you. As you read them, may you be blessed by them and may you seek to keep them and their truth and their reality in your own life. 